You're listening to Red Center, your guide to digital cinema, filmmaking, and cutting-edge imaging. Hi, and welcome to this week's Red Center podcast, coming to you from Sydney with uh, myself, Mike Seymour, and of course, the show's founder, actually, Jason Wingrove. Hello, mate. How are you? Good. I say show's founder, even though I've been here since show one, it was your idea to do the show, and I always like to make sure that that's acknowledged. Just like to rub it in. I'm not rubbing it in, I'm paying <laughs> due respect to your foresight and brilliance in suggesting... Ridiculous idea, way back then. ...to do this podcast several years ago. Way back then. It feels like several years in technology-wise. Before we start the show this week, I just want to thank everybody that sent in uh, emails and Twitter posts and stuff about last week's show. We geeked out a bit over sensors in particular over stuff to do with uh, the raw recording format and stuff to do with sensors. We got a lot of good feedback on that. Um, this week on the show, we have a lot of news. A bunch of stuff has happened. We're going to discuss that and uh, get behind it as we do. It's implications for shooting video and uh, for doing professional work. And uh, But I will say that we'll be heading over soon to uh, London in about a couple of weeks and we'll be also at IBC. So we'll be bringing you stuff from there, which will include um, some stuff we've got uh, Red lined up for an interview where they're going to be discussing ISO and stuff as well as of course any news and stuff that they show there at the show but now um, as always let's start with the news. Yeah well I guess talking with you, I guess you having a chat with ISO, obviously what happened at the tail end of last record was they started to uh, come out with uh, a lot of the stuff which then leads to essentially takes us to number 21 on the Scarlet or Epic features list uh, of your which was the uh, HDR mode, or now called HDRX mode, I guess. And that was the post that said off the chart, which basically they were doing some dynamic range testing. And working with the... I'm not really familiar with the DSC chart, but it's a dynamic range chart, which uh, essentially, as far as I know, goes up to about... is able to sort of demonstrate about 17 stops I think of it goes to dynamic 11, range. It? <laughs> it goes up to 11. <laughs> uh, it goes up to 17 stops and... As the post itself indicates off the chart, they basically, as Jim says, we need a new chart. So details are really sketchy about the HDRX mode, but uh, sounding like... This show has we has uh, guessed before as to how this might uh, be done. Yeah, but still we don't guessing. Know. Well, one we thing know. we do know that it's not temporal. It's not, a, um, it's not a blending of uh, subsequent shots, like, you know, if, two, if they're essentially doing a shot at... One fiftieth of a second shot. It's not blended two hundredth of a second shots blended together at uh, different ISOs. It is actually all captured in one frame at one time. <laughs> and we'll we'll be continuing to speculate on that until we get our hands on an epic when we can actually try and work it out for ourselves. But look, it's it's great news, and uh, we've we've hit this uh, drum several times. Dynamic range is one of the key aspects that DOPs uh, really want in the field. Mm. Uh, it's terrific that this is getting due attention. It's uh, very promising, and I just look forward to us being able to see that um, up close and personal. Perhaps, you know, yeah. they'll have a demonstration of it at IBC. Um, yeah. Certainly, we expect a big difference in the demoing uh, environment of IBC over uh, NAB, because at NAB it was uh, far more restricted, and of course we now yeah. have off the ranch kind of thing, off the uh, reservation. Out in the open? Mm. Almost out in the open. I think the way to describe it is we're at, at a pre... Would you say that we were at a pre-tattoo um, stage? Yeah, pre-tattooed, pre-epic, full epic proper launch, I yeah. guess, um, stage. But we, you know, we feel confident. Now, you've got some, some, I don't know what you'd call it, intelligence, gossip, well, I information. So. I mean, you've probably, you've probably heard this as well, Mike, but I've heard now from two or three people that um, that uh, apart from one other show, there is epics heading down to New Zealand. May or may may not be accompanied with with uh, its father um, down to do some testing with uh, Mr. Jackson for uh, Hobbit, the Hobbit series, upcoming Hobbit. Series. Well, I guess it's going to be um, a trilogy of three films for the Hobbit. I don't know. I'm not really. It was one book? Well, okay. But, hey, you know, Harry Potter they split into. Um, I know nothing about this uh, Hobbit split of which you speak. I do um, think that would make sense for Peter Jackson. I mean, Peter Jackson had the intro video at the NAB presentation where he sat there proudly with his red and said that uh, he was looking forward to stuff and even gave a 
jibe to read about getting the epics out there. So, look, um, if, if you were to get a director in the world that was A-grade, that really wanted to have a look at them... That, that had an upcoming project that would be perfect for you know, shooting... Uh, and somebody that's very sympathetic to, to Red, that you couldn't yeah. get anyone better than Peter That's Jackson. what I hear. Stereo, epics for The Hobbit with uh, PJ um, at the helm, testing with Key Crew in New Zealand as we speak. That would be just an, an awesome kickoff for uh, Epic to, to get that production underway. So, so let's uh, talk about the other thing that I thought was enormous news during the week um, from a Red point of view, which was the announcement that they were no longer selling Red drives, uh, SSDs. Well, for that matter, it went further and said that we're not even going to do 64 gig cards because people were saying if you're taking away the red drives, then surely we'll be going to SSD cards and are you going to release the 64 or are you going to release the 32s? What's happening? And they yeah. would know we're going to go beyond 64 gig to a land land far, far away where I'll click my heels together and we'll record. Um, yeah, but in the meantime, you don't even get to buy a pair of shoes to click them together. So, so let's uh, try and weave our way through the quite... I think, genuine um, astonishment from uh, people on this one. Yeah. First thing is, if you do have a red drive and if you have media that is in any way faulty or whatever, that it will be repaired. The analogy that was used online was that if I have a car that I'm no longer making the new model, I can still get parts for the old one. I can still happily repair the old one. No one's, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. That being said, it was kind of surprising to me that they would announce a, a lack of drive options without a replacement, even even speculated at. Now, maybe that's yeah. in light with the new decision by Red to not announce things until they're ready to go. Maybe well, they have speculated. Kind of... They say there's definitely we've got new media, um, forms of media in, in, in the pipeline, and this is going to be stuff that's going to be uh, work with Red ones as well as Epic. This is not just new stuff that, you know, screw you, you've got a Red one, oh, well, too bad. You've had, it for, you've had two, three good years out of it, oh, well. This is stuff that's definitely going to be um, going to work with, with your Red one. It's just not out now, and they're not giving any dates because... You know, they, they, in their own words, they've, they've, they've blown dates out of the water before. They're not going to give dates and just yeah, be wrong. Yeah, I just would have thought that maybe they would have done a deal with uh, somebody else and said, look, we're not going to do it anymore. But in the meanwhile, just so you know, if anyone desperately needs to buy new drives, uh, we're going to give a rubber stamp to this third-party alternative. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, back then... When, I mean, a lot, obviously the hardware's moved on in terms of MX chip and, and, you know, firmware updates. But basically the red drives are the same. There's no red drive 1 versus red drive 2 that's kept up with red codes. It's the same drive. And surely in the three years or three years plus since they physically locked off what, you know, what the componentry was for a red drive, surely if they're having component, if they're having supplier issues or as they alluded to, suppliers have gone out of business, you know, with GFC there would be a replacement a little bit more less cutting edge would be slightly more off the shelf and handy to 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 well this is why i say the third party thing because if you say third party there's an expectation right away like if you say we've got a new drive and it's not as good as our old one but tough then everyone's like well that's just stupid but if you say look we've got a whole new thing coming and if you can wait for it, great. And if you can't, then we'll let you use yeah. these other ones. And then everyone goes, oh, okay, well, I know where I stand. Because as you, I think, uh, yourself said, it's not even as you can say, okay, well, I'll just stock up on 16 gig cards because who wants to be stocking up on 16 gig cards when the expectation is I won't have a card drive on my camera? Well, I presume they're still going to have CF drives on Epics. They still have CF card drive i'm sure but it's if, just if the can, future is something other if they're sure. not going down the path of having 64 gig cards or 32 gig cards or yeah. whatever and and let's but face it, might it be an ssd I, I use a very good 32 yeah. gig card in my um slr quite happily it's not like mm. those cards don't exist and that's a yeah you know udma thing which you think would easily take the data rates uh now as you say a few years mm. on from, from when we started um I look know. i just think it's uh it's a shame. Um, I'm sure that there is good reason for it. I'm obviously not privy to those discussions, so how would I know what that good reason is? I, I obviously wouldn't. Yeah, it's just unfortunately um, been not handled very well. There's plenty of people who have had drives on back orders that, although the back orders will be filled and they are going to do repairs, you just physically can't order a new red drive or an SSD. Yeah. It's just the people who potentially, you know, there's people with rental houses who've got 14, 15 cameras and have got, you know, 20, 30 drives. Um, they've they might be about. They might be quoting now for a feature they can't now. Just literally, they can't. Well, look. The first thing, the first thing we it. did here at this office is, and our camera occasionally goes out on rental. Is I said, that's it. No more renting our drive. Yeah. Because uh, I, you know, if that drive dies, like yeah. somebody loses it, 
I can't go and buy a replacement. I mean, yeah, I understand but there's repairing, no warning but for that. If somebody says, yeah, if somebody said to me, look, you know, I'm sorry, but the, you know, the drive got transferred to someone's car because it was going to go and get, uh, you know, thing, and then the car got broken into. The drive's gone. Sorry, we'll buy you another one. So, yeah. Well, there's nothing. And they're saying, well, you know, just use 16 gig ZFs. Apart from the fact that, you know, 16 gig ZFs, your investment in them, although they're not wildly expensive, you've got an eight minute roll time. Oh, well, fair enough. Just go back to film if you're not happy with eight minute roll time. Yeah, the well, is, there's the, certain things that we do that, yeah, like the, interviews, where we yeah, may be rolling for longer. Long form interviews. I mean, you yourselves, you use it for longer than yeah. eight minute takes all the time. Uh, you're rigging on a crane, you're going in an underwater rig, uh, interviews, live, live um, performances, yeah. you know. Look, you just I'm, don't I'm want to be swapping a, the drives. Appraise, not, I'm first to praise Red when they do something oh, really, really absolutely. good. I just think this isn't the right decision. I'm not privy to why they're making it, obviously. So perhaps when I do ever, if I ever find that out, I'll say, oh, okay, that makes sense. But yeah. from where I'm sitting right now, it, it's not a respectful decision. It doesn't feel like a good decision. Um, yeah. And I certainly was sort of felt like we were caught on the hop a bit on Imagine that. Imagine if you had, you know, if you had a rental company, you got you got no warning basically for the fact that you can now no longer buy any backups or that feature you were quoting for, you can't sort of tool up for it. Um, yeah, no, yeah. Uh, particularly when there's not only no idea of what's coming, how much it's going to cost, or when it's actually going to be here, but you also can't replace it with anything. So I'm sure this is definitely not not Red's planned they would have planned to have had everything out on the market by now by release it would have been planned to have released it but it's just know, ironic just it feels like we're being hurt by the let's not talk about future things where what we really want is the good old red that was transparent and said hey this is what's going on we'll let you know what's going on um yeah and and i don't know whether that's the case it just feels like it's the case yeah, so look, no doubt there is something in the, in the pipe, but we just don't know what it is. In the meantime, look, if you've, out of interest, if you've got, I know this is, you know. I'll be even more point this blank. Is if not... you've got a drive you want to sell, then can you give me a <laughs> That's call? That's right. I'll happily exactly. buy drives. And look, and one of the other solutions suggests is, oh, look, just rent it. But, you know, the th- renting a drive is not a solution for a rental company. They want to rent something to rent. And they've got a, you know, you want to rent something that you know you can trust, you know it's... Um, uh, you know its history. You know how long the drive inside's been. Uh, to that point, although it's you know obviously going against the official what you should be allowed to do, but if you've managed to find a replacement or you've slotted found two third-party SSDs and slotted them in and made it work, if you've got a fix out of interest, look, you know this may just be the solution for other people. You know if you've found something that works, and you know just you know ping us an email and just let us know, be interesting to see if there is a solution. You know we're not. Um, going to start piping it and sharing around but it would be interesting to, to know if someone's actually found a, found yeah, absolutely. a fix and, and, and uh, as I say I think third party is an uh, ultimately sensible way to go it has the expectation that it's not from red so it may not meet of course. red uh, criteria but at least it gives us you know something yeah um, alright well let's move on we have a couple of other camera manufacturers that have got some interesting news out um, I guess uh, well do you want to kick off with the Sony one? Yeah, well, I guess the Sony, um, what has been rumoured for a fair while, that what we're going to start to see is these new evil cameras. Um, Why is it ele- evil? Electronic viewfinder, interchangeable lens. Okay. So, <laughs> glad you asked, because I had to go and find What the fuck is this evil thing? I've got to find that out. Um, so, uh, what's interesting about it is that, uh, that basically it's a new the new Alpha DSLRs for um, Sony. And obviously, it's proprietary Alpha lens, their their Sony mount, um, which I guess is sort of derivative derived from the original Minolta mount. Uh, so it actually has a rather than um, being it actually actually has a pellicle in it, uh, which is kind of like a beam splitter, which is putting most of the light through to the sensor and then part of the light up into the uh, I guess into the top of the camera for live focus is one of the main things is to be able to in video mode um, have have better focus because obviously you need to be able to send that light somewhere okay. to to tick, sensors. that's a good thing tick. yes this is a good thing tick that's great um, yeah uh, the uh, uh, what is also cool which I think is going to uh, put a lot of people's accessories out on on the uh, out on the footpath for cleanup day is um, flip out LCD monitors 
obviously what's what's been entirely missing for a long time in in the 5D mode because obviously it's never been designed to do it is uh, LCD on the back that you only have, you always have to look from the look look on from from the rear with a stick on Z finder or whatever. So now the uh, this camera has a flippable, rotatable, you name it. Pretty much, I can't think of a position where you can't put this LCD in uh, out the back. To um, okay. good, the, good, good the idea. viewfinder, Tick. it doesn't does not have an optical viewfinder, which is okay. But I guess it means that you will in video mode, you will be able to put your eye up to an actual viewfinder, so you won't need a, a, a you know any sort of loop finder. So I guess that's partial you know, tick. Yep. Tick for DSLR mode, it's a tick. You can't beat having an optical viewfinder if you're in stills mode. Yeah. But as I say, I think this is the way way these things are going. Having not, I've run, uh, no one's really had a great look at the viewfinders, but it might the electronic viewfinder in the top of this thing maybe absolute cracker, maybe maybe just just fantastic. And obviously, if you're shooting, well, I mean, I use an electronic viewfinder on the red, and I find it happy. Yeah, and obviously, what an electronic viewfinder will give you is. Uh, uh, exposure simulation yeah. overlays of information like yeah you get exactly color. that's yeah. true exactly of course you can have histogram in there looking through the viewfinder without an LCD on the back you can see exactly what your exposure is yep. rather than have to shoot and then chimp on the back and, and see what so your exposure was after you shot it that would be three ticks. that would be some ticks and you might think this is the best camera ever <laughs> however you'd be wrong um, one of the, the uh, continuing stupidities through Nikon and, and Sony has been their video modes and the frame rates and all that sort of stuff. Now, I, again, AVC HD, I'm still not uh, able to get my head quite around why it's bad, but uh, for more reports, AVC HD in the more domestic versions of AVC HD uh, is pretty sucky. Uh, 1920 by 1080 uh, at 59.94i. Or it gives you a 29.9... Sorry, you mean in addition to the 24p mode, right? Uh, 24p? No, I can't... Oh, yeah, that must be down here somewhere. 24p, 1442... Um, no, no, no. No, no I'm not seeing one. I'm not oh, seeing any 24p mode. No. So 1920 be, by 1080 at 59.94i. What, oh, what, what the fuck? Uh, motion JPEG at 1440 by 1080. Uh, at 29.97p okay, so. or 25p, depending on region. So as this is not a stills camera show, yes, I'm going to hash fail that one. Yep. So there is uh, so 25p. It looks like they'll give you 30p if you want for NTSC regions and 25p for power regions, and that is your lot. So hash interesting. Fail. I mean, the main thing about this is why I'm bringing even bothering to mention it. It's just an interesting design direction. I think there's a lot of cameras that are going to go this way. There's some clever stuff here. Flip-out monitors, no optical viewfinder paths, live view through the viewfinder. So there's a ton of stuff there. Um, and I think it's sort of at least... Uh, maybe there'll be the pro version. In true Sony Sony way, they'll give you th- this version for Without whatever the flip-out screen. For six or seven hundred bucks. Yeah. <laughs> no, their pro version, and then they'll have the, the pro version that's got all the features that you paid for all actually switched on, and they mark it up 300%. So, um, anyway, we'll see. Who knows? So, over at Canon, we have some uh, news. Yeah, look. Um, Slightly further back in the development cycle, it but nevertheless. Is, it is a little bit. Um, now, so, somebody on. actually asked us to, to name what day these shows are recorded on for reference. And so, this is the 24th of August, and we're recording this on the 25th of August. And on the 24th, Canon announced that it was developing a um, APS-H CMOS sensor with the resolution of approximately 120 megapixels. That would be 13,000 and change times 9,000 and change, making it one of the highest level uh, high-resolution uh, chips of its type in the world. Now, this is not an experimental thing. This is not um, some Dodgy Brothers thing. This is an actual chip that they fully expect to... Um, to, to put into the marketplace. And as such, they've actually said that it incorporates full HD 1920 by 1080 video output capability. The sensor can fill that full HD video uh, with any approximately one sixth size section of the surface area of the chip. Now, this is a very interesting and curious right. uh, comment. We have no idea how this is going to translate into a camera body because this we're talking about is a, a chip. Yep. Um, but it does also say that it's going to go at, um, I mean, 120 megapixels is just ridiculous, but it's also saying it's going to go at up to 9.5 frames per second, uh, shooting or rather supporting... Shooting 120 megapixel stills. Yeah. So, um, 
So this could be uh, extraordinarily interesting. Of course, one of the things we really want Canon to get, and I'm sure they get this, but just to be absolutely crystal about this, what we like about the 5D is not necessarily the 1920 by 1080 output so much as it's a 1920 by 1080 output of the full sensor. Yeah. And I presume this would do this, though it reads a little like it's going to do a sixth cut of the surface yeah. area. Yeah, so it'll be as, what they're saying is, I mean, one of the possible implication, uh, implementations of this is a sensor crop, but uh, it will be pixel for pixel 1080p, not sort of line skipped or, or you know, or reduced and transcoded down Yes, but I'd actually quite like a 1920 by 1080 output yes. from, the from the whole picture. Yeah. Yes. With the really shallow depth of field and the gorgeous everything not put into a line skipped, line doubled, line crapped <laughs> image, not with 8-bit compression. Yeah, with some cream on the top and some sprinkles. And oh, no, it's I'd not like, um, I'm sorry, I, I really want that because... Uh, Time and time again, I, I have this discussion, but I honestly, even again this week, I was grading some footage that we shot. Um, it would have been uh, filmed by Tyler a stop under, mm. and I, of course, uh, expanded that up, and it absolutely hit the limits of what I could do. If you use stuff that was two stops under, it was banding it. nasty, right. ugly, and even at the one stop, it had some uh, compression artifacts in there. It looked fine at 720p. Yep. It didn't look... Fine, looked okay at 1920 by 1080 on a flame screen. And, you know, I know that people say, oh, we put this stuff out to, to, to film and it looked terrific and blah, blah, blah. And yes, some of the film grain would hide some of the banding. But, you know, you should have in the grading environment more than one stop latitude left and right before you hit problems. And, you know, we talk about grading and we talk about latitude of film and latitude of red camera or whatever. And it's always about how much can I grade it for me anyway? How much can you grade how much it can back? I screw it up? And, save and grade it back, yeah. And so I only have, I honestly believe, one stop latitude on these um, 8-bit mm. MPEG bloody things. Yeah. So I love it to death. Don't get me wrong. It looks great. looks really great on any Vimeo uh, YouTube video where it's been shrunk down. But um, for professional use, this chip looks awesome. And I just can't wait to see what sort of cameras it's going to appear in. Yeah, and it's APSH, which is from I'm um, I'm still a bit grey. One day I'll write all this stuff down. But APSH, I think, is a bit bigger than APS. Obviously, it's one step bigger than APS-C. Pro, it's, it's more than one step, Jase, because after D and E and oh, F, sorry, it's two. G. E E F G H. It's a few steps. It's gone from C to H. Some steps. Jace. It must be better. It's gone to eleven. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, slightly larger, heading more towards the Epic um, size sensor versus APS-C, which is more like red one. Uh, again, speaking on my ass in stereo, as someone reminded me I said the other day. <laughs> I'll, I'll try and remember that. Yeah, it's still pretty interesting. And, uh, look, this is um, actually something we got off MacRumors.com, which is a really good site, though it isn't a rumor. It's actually um, a release from uh, Canon. Canon. But uh, shout out to the guys at MacRumors. Canon Rumors. Canon Rumors, I'm sorry. Yeah. What did I say? MacRumors, I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry. A uh, slip of the tongue. Uh, so we're going to start to see a whole bunch of this stuff coming up. Obviously, Photokina is the uh, major um, uh, photo shop, photo, shop, uh, photo um, trade shows. Yep. Thank you. Photography. It's a tricky word, isn't it? Yeah, that, uh, that and uh, there's uh, a PMA at, uh, in Vegas. But yeah, this yeah. is the one for this time of year. This I think Photokina is only every two years. Hmm. And uh, it's a room really reasonably major. And it's kind of like you know those motor shows they only do every couple of two or three years. They don't bother showing a lot of stuff at other shows, and they do the big launches at uh, the big shows. So I think next couple of months are going to be quite interesting. There's going to be a lot of stuff. I'm fully expecting something from Canon. Uh, may or may not actually have this chip in it, but who knows? Anyway, uh, like the like the last two years of this show, uh, the next two are going to be uh, well interesting. Um, one other thing that. We'll- we, uh, when we're on news, Fuji's uh, released an updated version of their W1 stereo camera. Now, this oh, yeah. is a 3D stereo stills camera that I bought, I think, the, actually the day before it came out. I was f- talking to Fuji, and they were like, really? We hadn't even announced we had these things yet. And I was like, yep, well, I'll buy one. Um, it's a point-and-shoot that had some video in it. The video was only sort of 640 by 480 and not particularly good quality, uh, to the point that I would say for professional use it was unusable. Um, yeah. This one has a 720p capability. We haven't tested it. We don't know how good it is. Look, I've got to say that I think um, the benefit of being able to take some stereo stills, I still to this day think is is awesome because if you wanted to do some matte painting type work or some other kind of work, it's really hard 
to expect that you're going to be able to get a stereo rig out and being able to sort of take a still, uh, both for learning and for experimenting and just for the fun of it, was great. And a little bit of video didn't hurt, but... mm, um, it is a bugbear, the W1, as is the W3, because it has weird software. We have to run it up on Windows to be able to separate our stereo uh, pair, which is encoded into the file. Um, though, having said that, being fixed lenses in a fixed chassis, yeah. you don't have alignment problems between the left and right frame. And you know, We've done quite a lot of stills like that and taken fun stuff. We have a... Because um, it's not just that easy as just blowing it up. It's just, is it, from memory? I know that when we were shot, we did our 3D sh- short... Not quite that simple as just uh, taking a shot and no, but it's it up. It, it's a good, uh, friendly, accessible way to get into three D photography. And quite frankly, if you were you know had a visual effects job coming up with three D and you wanted to learn about it, what a great inexpensive way to be able to get something to get some material to have a look at. Um, and certainly, you could learn a lot about the process by just taking some stills and then you know analyzing them and and playing with them and stuff. Yeah, um, oh, look, it's, and it's a significant upgrade in a plenty of ways. From the, the, the W3 uh, is actually about 100 bucks cheaper, Jason. 100 bucks cheaper. It's, I think it's smaller and lighter and thinner and probably got a better screen and, as you say, better video mode. I mean, they're a great little fun thing. I mean, it's an amazing thing to play with. If you, even if you just get the chance, pick one up and just have a play because what's cool about it is the 3D display on the back. It's like a lenticular LCD that you actually literally, I know it seems weird, take a picture of a 3D object, then marvel, then marvel at the picture of the object in 3D when yeah. you actually have the freaking object right there next to you. But it, it's kind of uh, really interesting. Yeah. It's really interesting. I mean, Life space where you can go out and interact with things in the real world <laughs> that are so real because they are. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway. Um, but yeah, no, definitely. Worth a, worth a play to kind of see a, a 3D LCD in front of you without yeah. having to wear any you know, glasses and all that sort of stuff. So does that just about do it this week for news? Have I missed any major announcements? Oh, look, you know, there are lots of other things come and go in, in the... Uh, in the Twitter sphere and the blogosphere, but you know, to be honest, a lot of stuff is just really not applicable to what we talk about, or it's deeply not professional, or it's just borderline like the uh, the Sony SLR. But we think it's important sometimes if it indicates uh, where things are going. Okay, well, now in the red room uh, this week, I'm going to actually sit down, Jace, with uh, as you heard at the top of the show, John Lissenhop. Now, John is a director who has. Uh, directed a couple of things before, but this is um, a really interesting film. It's called Takers. It's actually shot on the Genesis. Uh, and I, I was I actually, it's funny, I was interested in this film for a couple of reasons. Actually, one of them was that it was going to be used as uh, a vehicle for launching the futures market, which has since been banned by the US uh, uh, Congress. But this was a um, uh, an idea basically to sell futures in films. Uh, nothing to do with the director. This was something that the studio had set up. But also, it's an interesting film shot on the Genesis. Uh, it's very, um, it's kind of like a hipper, younger version, I guess, of an Ocean's uh, Eleven. Anyway, um, I was very appreciative of the fact that John gave his time to sit down and, and talk to us this week uh, in the Red Room. I was wondering if we could talk to you about some of the, I guess, directorial decisions that came to to make the film, given the styling of the film that you've gone for, which is... Um, which, as you say, has this kind of coolness, and but also, um, uh, I guess it's got a young appeal in terms of demographic. It does. So if you look at the tracking, it's funny. It's got a very strong female pull to it. I guess because all the guys are in their suits and stuff. Um, females over twenty-five. They're a strong demo for this movie, believe it or not. Well, that bodes um, extremely well, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think it's because they want to see the guys, um, which was. You know, it was. Uh, uh, we're real. I'm really happy with how the casting came together, and just uh, just kept going, and uh, I, we just kept reaching, and we kept getting. Um, this is why I think it's fun because it's not. There's not just a token white guy, a token black guy, or this or that. It's really a truly is a sort of multicultural cast, and then they interact with each other uh, just as straight up as people, which is what I really like too. Now, if I could talk to you about some of the sort of technical aspects of how it came together um just literally okay. with uh, the logistics of it for a start i mean you decided to shoot this primarily as an hd cam sr format film how did you find working with uh, filming digitally i was scared to death of it at first i got sort of talked into the camera that uh, is used by i guess panavision and sony created genesis and i went and saw some tests and i um, was became convinced I could not tell the difference any longer between film and HD 
um, when it was done. Plus, we had so such an ambitious schedule. The uh, HD camera was helpful because you know you can run 42-minute tapes. You don't have to stop and reload film every 10 minutes or a piece of it. Um, and I ran basically three cameras at a time, almost all the time, so I could get 35 to 40 shots a day in um, to make the picture. So the digital was an advantage, and then uh, I'm very sold on it now. I have no problem. I'd have to have an excuse to shoot film. There would have to be a specific reason now. That, I mean, I love Genesis. I've spoken to some uh, directors who said that one of the things that is great about it is that the the process of filmmaking interferes less with the actors because you literally don't have to keep stopping. And not only is it the process of stopping and reloading, but the second you do that, makeup runs in, continuity, somebody's running with a tape measure. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Mike, literally, we could be doing a take and there's suddenly, you can walk into the middle of the set, talk for five minutes, you've still never said cut, walk back. You know, and then say, okay, uh, reset uh, action, go again. And instead of, if you would cut it, there's always that weird five minutes of, oh, that other light needs to be tweaked, or this has to happen. Uh, And the actors are warmed up and ready to keep going versus having that little down before they got a big go again. Can I ask you, do you tend to rehearse? Um, I like to rehearse more than I've had for this movie, but I do not like to over-rehearse. My way of working actually would be to sit down and table read or if there's specific scenes that I'm concentrating on with actors, I'd bring those two in and just read and then just the minute that they start to want to get up and start to do something is when I want to stop it. You know, it's like (laughs) I want to get them to a point that they want it and they're familiar with it, but you don't want to overdo it because you want the magic on that day and you want some of the spontaneity and that they don't do things sort of by rote when it comes down to it. Um, and because you've got because you've got set pieces, and also actually because you have multi-character dialogue sequences, how did you handle the blocking both for the DOP and for the actors? Was it a matter of working the space and then trying to get straight into it, or was it much more sort of previsioned and thought through? Um, that's a great question because well, there were scenes where you have like the third day of the movie, we had like all six of the the guys in one scene in an area that's about. 12 feet by 18 feet and setting that up that I had gone through and walked and positioned everyone before we started. We didn't make it up that day. I had already in my mind that this line, you'll go over here, you'll go here, you'll stay seated. Then this happens. It was choreographed in advance, you know, and we knew camera wise, which setups we were going to do to achieve that. And fortunately, none of the actors really, felt a strong reason to deviate from what we had conceived. And Toby, how did you come to choose Michael Barrett to do the cinematography? And was his, because he's experienced in actually effects films and stuff like Bedtime Stories. Um, was any of that relevant? <laughs> or? Um, it was relevant to the studio. It wasn't relevant to me. I met Michael literally I walked on to Bedtime Stories that he was filming. I knew he had replaced Dean Semler, which is no small shoes to fill. Uh, yeah. And he had also, I saw a picture called Bobby, which he won um, awards for, and I was aware that he had set the look for the CSI Miami in its first two seasons. Um, so I knew he could do anything he wants to do, and to me, a lot of times, action is, a, is in the edit, not so much in the total photography, because the shot's a shot, it's just how much of it are you going to use. And I was taken by Michael Barrett, because one, he had wonderful ideas and a good control of what he was doing, but also he was, uh, for my taste, uh, very, very collaborative in how to approach things. He wasn't, photography was not his total domain, and yet he was also had comments about, well, you know, if you, could, you could do the scene this way or that way. He had constructive comments that went outside his realm also into the directorial realm that were very helpful, and I think that it allowed us to really work well together. I mean, he was my my man during making the movie, no question. The the process with the DOP now is uh, so interesting because it can start so early depending on how collaborative it is and also extend right through to post-production. How how much luxury did you have in terms of getting his help, say, through all the DI or was it just on principal photography? Well, you know, the prep is important and then through principal photography, at that point, uh, he wasn't there for editorial. Um, we did a pass for the uh, color correction, 
And then he basically filmed all night in Boston one night, went to New York by train, and I can't believe his eyes would still stay open. And we went through the entire movie um, in an eight-hour period and set the the colors one last time. But I thought, for one, I didn't think it would be unfair if we'd ever timed it without his involvement um, since he shot it. And, um, and then I think that it, it took the film to a different level to, just by going through it with him. If you look at a, a TV show like CSI, it actually... Um, is remarkable how much those looks are now cleverly crafted in the DI process. Um, did you think about that uh, extensively when you're making the film in terms of what you'd be doing with it in DI, or were you trying to get art department and everything to nail it in terms of the colour palettes and the, the vibe on set? Both. Um, we, in like a scene that was dark, we would always make sure all highlights we could get, things like that. Um, we had an idea of what the ultimate color or correction to whatever we were doing was. I never believed that what I saw in that monitor was my final movie, um, that uh, we were going to find some consistency or give it some kind of a look. But I didn't want uh, an over-stylized picture look either. We went for high gloss, um, which I thought would work well with the guys' high-end clothes, their high-end apartments, the lights in the background, the, contra- the night scenes, the day scenes, things like that that uh, we did take our time with. Uh, in, specifically, I remember the scene that's on the rooftop where Ghost is t- trying to sell the gang on doing this, the one job that they'd never been able to pull off to bring himself back into the crew. And we were on the top of a building on the lot, and yet they had to go light all these buildings all over Culver City that were going to be in the background and run putt-putt generators and wow. lights looking up so they could bring them out into the highlight because the whole movie's that way where there's depth uh, and that type of detail in the way back that I just was no way I was going to lose it just by shooting up on top of a building. So let's discuss some of the um, uh, set pieces and action pieces. So you have a really impressive set of stunt uh, performers that worked on this film, and obviously you had visual effects as well. Was there much in the way of uh, decision-making to be de- as to what was going to be done in camera and what was going to be done in post-production? Well, here's the thing. Most everything in this movie is done practical. The entire truck drop, drop sequence is no CGI at all. Uh, we built the the set for them to, where the trucks actually drive into the hole. When Paul Walker does that, there's a platform. We built this on sea containers, basically, and then built the interior walls. And then we had a huge platform where a, a huge crane would put the trucks up on this platform so they could be so they could do it without CGI. Um, we tried to avoid CGI. I think there's one or two green screen shots in the whole movie. The movie is uh, pictured together. Uh, the truck drop stuff is all was all storyboarded out so that everyone was on the same page. As much as the truck drop sequence, starting with even Ghost in the intersection waving the trucks in and holding them and then sending them on to the ground zero to, where the street's supposed to cave in, that's three locations. All of that was put together like a puzzle. It's like a mini book of storyboards so that everyone knew what we were doing. The opposite of that was Chris Brown's chasing when he's run being chased by the police and he goes through Pershing Square and mm-hmm. chased through the streets of L.A. It wasn't storyboarded. We actually walked it, you know, many times and then took video camera, very simple, and the stunt guys just said, okay, now you run here. Let's see what it looks like. And we sort of pre-vised it. Um, using very simple, you know, consumer video camera um, so that we knew kind of like, okay, where could we use the stunt guy? Where could we use Chris Brown? On the day, what's amazing is Chris Brown did about 95% of those stunts. He was not going to be held back. Even the studio freaked out because, you know, they're like, if he gets hurt, you know, you lose him for the rest of the movie. Yeah. Um, and, but he said, no, I can do this. I'll run up with the Jeep. I'll tumble over with the car. Um, I'll do this. I'd say that with the exception of one or two moments, he almost did everything. I mean, he's a remarkable athlete besides being a world-class entertainer performer. I, I think the film's uh, destined to be actually really successful because I think it, it's, uh, it's a good heist film. And uh, also there's sometimes problems with heist films to do with exposition, and you seem to have, have navigated the waters really well. Can I ask you, though, one question about the making of the film, which is maybe a little unusual and, and somewhat irrelevant now, but this was a film that was also um, early on targeted to be one of the Commodity and Future Exchange Commission's uh, motion picture index derivatives films. In fact, it got 
even, you know, media press about the fact that it was going to be the first film that people would be able to buy a binary call option on. Did any of that right. impact you? Was it just stuff that was happening at the studio or was any of this like you were involved in and aware of? Uh, was not aware of it. Uh, I read it on Nikki Fink. Okay. <laughs> I saw the poster one day. I said, what the fuck? Um, um, which was interesting to me because, uh, my history, I was a corporate lawyer on wall street. So I understood what they were buying. It's not like betting on a movie. Um, it was more complicated than that. It was um, offsetting. It's offsetting risk though. It was portrayed it's, very it's much. A as, hedge. Yeah. Right. It's a hedge security a derivative that I, I was like, wow. I mean, and then to read the, I guess it had been going on a while that the studio has resisted this type of securitization of their movies. Um, or, uh, that, and I understand why, because only something bad can happen or corrupt if they did it. Um, that I never knew, like I said, it didn't affect me one bit while we were making the movie. It was just something that came after the fact, and I was like, I can't believe we're the first one. And I guess that's been halted now. It must be kind of bizarre to read that uh, about your own film. Oh, I was stunned. And uh, I mean, I go to Nikki Fink, you know, once a day, once every other day or something. And <laughs> headline story in the poster of your movie, and it's not talking about the movie, it's something totally different. And uh, this new marketplace they were trying to create, uh, yeah, it was, uh, I didn't know what to do with it. Um, I... And, you know, anyway, it was just another one of those. What moments um, during the whole journey that this film has been, really? Yeah, it must be a huge journey for you because, I mean, uh, you know, one focuses on the number of days you had for principal photography. It's compl- I mean, how long were you in post? It must have been like, you know, five times that. A year. Yeah. A year. By the time you've really mixed it and we're done. And that's because it's just the start and stops of who can look at your picture at the studio level and comment. They really didn't. I will say this. Most of the filming and the editing studio was very, very deferential all the way through, really. And uh, I credit Clint Culpepper with a lot of it. He was tremendous during the mix, by the way. I, I was going um, to actually touch on uh, editing, and I already um, let that slide once by getting caught off in something else, because uh, so much of this film, you touched on it yourself, comes together with the pacing and that vibe to do with the, uh, the pacing of the editing. But also just there's some actual kind of, how can I put this, uh, the audience has to understand the choreography, but they also have to understand the geography of what's going on because the process is uh, important to the audience. They need to understand what's going on. They need to understand who's up and who's down kind of thing, the multiple characters right. tracking. Did you have one clear line for the edit or was it a matter of you get down various lines on various areas and then would like rework it for a whole different feel? We didn't rework it. I think that uh, I didn't have that luxury. Uh, I can say this, that there's not a single scene that was photographed in this movie that's not in that, on the screen. Um, it was incredibly efficient in production. Um, you might, we did things to uh, adjust pace. I mean, I remember the first cut was an hour and 58 minutes, and then I think the end result, it's an hour and 41 minutes. Um, and, but it really was by nip and tucking and then deciding what's so important about sewing this this long or that this long. I mean, the Chris Brown chase was nine minutes when I first started to whittle it down. But, but, but by no means am I is suggesting that you had any kind of luxury or waste involved. But having said that, of course, you did have the, the benefit of three cameras, which gives you quite a lot of editorial um, opportunities. Well, yeah, we shot a million two in terms of feet, uh, the equivalent <laughs> of like, motion picture feet. So, you know, from the editing standpoint, I mean, just for them to watch dailies would take them four hours a day. Um, what does that work out the, as a shooting ratio? It must be like 70 oh, to 1. Or yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. But I think that's what happens with multiple cameras and then the fact that the tapes are 42 minutes and you can walk into the middle of a scene and uh, then continue it on, but you've just burnt five minutes of time talking um, because you're afraid to break the setup or stop it to reset. Um, I think that goes into it. There's probably a ton of what had been motion picture film. One, you couldn't have done it, but you would have a lot of waste. That you, you couldn't have done that if you were filmed. You'd have to cut it and then go again. Not only were you directing this, but you were obviously one of the four writers credited for the film. Was it? Was this the? I mean, and, and obviously you had control. So was this end film, the film you started writing, or did it did it change over time? Because it sounds like maybe a little it uh, it uh, got a it, life it, of its own. Uh, well, it, it, the script was originally. 
conceived by Gabriel Cassius and Peter Allen. Um, I worked with Gabriel on a, on a picture I did, an urban pic, prison picture called Lockdown. And then he gave me his script, uh, and then I went worked on it with my writing partner, Avery Duff. The story started, it was a New York City story. Um, we could not, at the end of the day, really film there because the, they won't allow helicopters over the city and a bunch of things that just kind of made us go away. Um, then it was rewritten for San Francisco, um, which I thought was a great venue for it. Um, when Clint finally greenlit it, he said, no, I want it in L.A. Um, there was some little bit of talk of moving the thing north of the border to film it in Canada or something to save some money. Uh, Clint rejected that. Um, he wanted a movie shot in L.A., and that's when uh, it moved away from being sort of a darker, gritty cop story about Matt Dillon, and his, there was more to his backstory in the original scripts, um, and became more about the crew. And we, that's when we decided, okay, this, you know, dress him up, give him great cars, do all these things, and uh, use Los Angeles, big canvas L.A., and you know, find things that sold it that way and made it cool and hip and you know, stand out in the marketplace. Yet you, while we wanted to keep going bigger and elevating, you know, with budget restrictions at Sony Screen Gems. So that was the other uh, sort of recess, resource challenge that went with the film. I mean, I can only think of something like Heat as something that used LA in that sort of same way. Well, thank you. Um, heat. Okay, this movie was conceived as a younger, hipper Heat. Oh, okay. Um, that's really, I mean, Gabriel Cassius will tell you the moment he walked out of Heat in 1997 or 6, whenever it came out, and just said, what a great movie. What if it, we did something not quite so dark and with younger, more accessible leads? And that's not to say anything against Pacino and De Niro, because they're no. awesome. But it was like, what if you, you know, that movie did $75 million. And it should, in my mind, it should have done a gazillion, because it's almost yeah. a masterpiece. Uh, it's um, good, yeah. Um, oh, it's... it's it's man at its finest. And uh, that we said, let's, that was kind of the inspiration for the movie. Um, and then the fact that it came back to an, an L.A. story is really a roundabout way, roundabout story anyway. I, I guess some of those street scenes just have that feel because um, I liked Heat a lot, but uh, some of those street scenes are very distinctive. And, uh, and you know, that you said broad canvas LA, because I think that's the other important thing. It's easy to think of, if you haven't seen the film, thinking of LA as the sort of Hollywood bit, or even the Santa Monica Venice bit. Um, right. And uh, and you take it further. We went downtown to New LA. We did uh, the hills, the uh, sexy streets, you know, the overheads with Paul Walker driving the speedster, all these things. We did sell it. We, did, we stayed away from the beach on purpose. I don't know why, but we did. We just thought that that would make it too easy. Um, and that was sort of the thoughts that went with it. Well, look, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. I really appreciate you going through the, uh, the process. And, uh, you know, I think the film's obviously going to be really successful, but, but good luck with it. Thank you so much. I really do appreciate it. And uh, for those of you who are interested, that, uh, in the US, that's going to be released on the 27th of August. And uh, actually, the initial um, tracking on that film looks really, really good. And, uh, and obviously, elsewhere around the world, um, a little bit after. But uh, uh, it's a good-looking film. I think it gets opened here, Jace, in, um, well, f- ages later. I know the UK, it's like about the 1st of October. But uh, anyway, that's, uh, uh, thanks again anyway, to, to John for doing that with us. Well, Jason, now let me just change gear for a second and just talk about a couple of things from uh, letters that people have sent us or emails. Um, there's a couple of things that I have said that people have, uh, you know, we always say emails and we mean it. And, uh, and I have had, um, as you know from CC <laughs> on them, some heavy duty engagements with some listeners on uh, some of the technical aspects of the stuff that we've been talking yeah, about. Yeah, like math and stuff. Like math and stuff. So uh, I live in a world where. For a long time now, I've really tried to walk the line between, um, I think I'd say, talking with directors and talking with geeks and getting that balance right so that, um, you know, I, how can I put it, I simplified and got to the essence of it when talking to the director so that it was cut through. And at the other end Small was geeky words enough and talk to... Slowly. No, no, it's just, you know, quite frankly, uh, why overwhelm a director with a bunch of maths when he's trying to work out what the emotional yeah, yeah, impact of the shot is? Exactly. No, I think not... that's the real essence of being a good uh, VFX supervisor. But, 
But, but, and but. Um, so I, for example, said in a previous show that uh, the 1.2 that I'd bought was about a half a stop better than the 1.4. Now, um, if you actually were to analyse it, as people did, and sent me the math, you would realise, as I will now give you a geek warning for about 30 seconds, that, um, that the 1.4 is in fact uh, a 1.4 because it's the ratio of the uh, aperture to the 50mm, in this case, lens, right? So the aperture, the diameter of a 1.4 is 35.7 to a 50mm, right? That's the ratio of 1.4 times 35.7 equals 50. Did I with the 1.2? And you halve that to get the, the radius of the aperture, of course, and then you do pi r squared, as we'd all remember from school, to get the area of the aperture, and it's the area of the aperture that defines, like, you know, literally millimetres squared, how much area there is for light to come through. If you were to go up a stop, you halve the amount of light. So if I was to say half a stop difference, I haven't doubled the amount of light or halved the amount of light, but I've done 50% of that. Fair enough, too. If you do the maths between the 1.2 and the 1.4, you'll come out with the shocking realisation that the difference is 36%, which is remarkably like a third of a stop. Now, I'm skipping through the maths that got me there, but feel free to email me and I'll email you back all the maths that proves this. Um, but I worked this out to, to uh, literally a, um, a single millimetre squared. And, and so somebody pointed this out to me. They said, why would you do that, Mike? Why would you say that it was half a stop difference when, in fact, um, it's 36% difference and not a 50% difference? And the answer is really simple, though. <laughs> In the world of cinematography, some people work in half-stops. And if you actually go to Wikipedia and look, there's a typical half-stop scale, which will list the 1, the 1.2, and the 1.4 as half-stops, right? The half-stop between 1 and 1.4 is 1.2. Um, and then if you were to look at the same Wikipedia page, you'll see that there's a typical one-third stop F-scale, which has correctly between 1 and 1.4, 1.1 and 1.2, correctly identifying the 1.2 as a third of a stop difference. So, look, yes, the difference between these two opinions is a sixth of a stop. And somebody asked me, you know, but surely... And I was like, actually, no. To be quite frank, a sixth of a stop is actually not that important. No. It is important if you want to get the maths right, and if I was uh, doing a maths course, I should get that right. But honestly, on set, uh, I have a spot meter, Jace, and I, it actually deals in third spots. So if I'm dealing in thirds on set, I would actually talk in thirds yeah usually on thirds you'd talk on set you'd talk yeah. thirds really uh, with a classic spot meter but quite frankly it's also quite common to talk in half stops because there aren't many cinematographers um that are maybe there are but there aren't many cinematographers i deal with that are bitching and griping over the six stop uh difference between the the, the two and I, i'm all for getting it right but by the same token on set you do tend to colloquialize a bit and so yeah. yes Bees dick above whatever. A bees dick and above, yeah. A half. line, fat line, yeah. fat line above Split four. Yeah. Yeah, okay, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, the other thing is a lot of these uh, lenses we're talking about have analog settings on them in the sense that you wind things. And so, yes, they're accurate, but by the same token, you know, there's even parallax shift in your eye lining up the little <laughs> notches. Right. So yeah. you can get yourself into a false sense of whatever. And I, I have to say, if you went on set and started arguing with the DOP over whether it was a, six, a third of a stop or a half a stop, He'd want to be a good friend, because, because that's. Uh, but but that being said, I was wrong. I totally uh, acknowledge that I am and as in error. You've proved in testing, and you know, it's uh, uh, anecdotally, you can everyone would sort of know that three lenses from three different manufacturers all set to two point eight are going to give you three different exposure results. Yeah, I mean, look, in all honesty, yeah, I, I, that is where my heart is coming from. I really don't like the idea of quoting something to six decimal places when it's a guess in the first place. I mean, in life, in statistics, I think that that is a huge error. Like 33.8% of people think that that's bluer than that. And it's actually really like, really, that gives you an essence of, of confidence that is far beyond what it is. Mm. But that being said, it's totally true. In terms of the maths, um, that is a, a third of a stop, not a half. Yeah. The other one that came up was um, a huge discussion about uh, the doubler. Doublers. Yeah. So the thing about the doubler is... Um, some, there was a lot of discussion about this, and, and, and I'm, I'm going to cut it down to what I think is some salient points, one of which is, why did we lose two stops? Um, what's going on? And this is a really simple one to answer, because it, once you sort of know this, of course, it's obvious, but yeah. 
if you had a picture that was the size of, uh, well, let's just say that it was two units by two units, yeah, that's the picture that you've got, and you stick a doubler on it, you're going to double that, so you're going to crop into the middle of it, you'll obviously get half. But of course, a, uh, a square in the middle of that picture that's half the size in inverted commas, so it's obviously one by one, has the unit area of one unit squared. The original picture had four units squared. So when you halve the size of a picture, in other words, you get it half its length and half its height, it goes from being four units down to one, and that's why 4K is said to be four times the size of 2K. It's all the same deal. And so clearly, if you just have a quarter of as much of the picture being passed back to the sensor, just literally now because we've cropped in, then a quarter of as much light is two stops. So if I have a gorgeous... Look at the back of that for a start. If you just look at... Oh, no. Here, look at this, everyone. I'm just looking at the front the of doubler. a uh, doubler itself. Yeah, I mean, it's not all full glass like the front of a lens. It's literally... It, it, there's a small section in the centre that is actually, you know, the optical magnifier. Yeah, so, so, so now... But having said that, you can't be super um, comfortable with what's going on with lenses because lenses is very, very complicated. In fact... For example, the 70 by 200 maintains 2.8 throughout the zoom. Well, theoretically, what should be happening, 2.8 should be changing, right? So there's obviously a counterbalancing act going on inside the lens to increase the amount of light to compensate for the loss of light by zooming in on part of the optics. And so these are complicated issues with, with the lenses. But um, with the doubler, if I could just be really crystal about this, the reason that I was saying things the way I was, again, this conversational thing, is to give you the impression, which I hope I have, is the doubler is a good thing because the doubler doesn't make your pictures look like crap. It does give you uh, an image that has twice the focal length. And because of the way that it's doing it, it doesn't bring with it a diabolical bokeh. It doesn't go from being a really cool-looking picture and if I did two stops on a 50 mil lens, I went from like a 1.4 up to a whatever that would be, yep. you know, I would be like, uh, you know what, I really don't think this picture looks as good at 2.8 as it did down at 1.4. And you'd be right, because two stops on a 50 mil lens is a big diff. Yeah. Um, so we were arguing a second ago about whether it's, you know, half a stop or a third of a stop. And that's obviously, you know, a lot less than jumping two stops. But my point about it is that we're so ingrained to avoid that two-stop difference on, say, a 50mm lens, that when you hear about a doubler being two stops, you think, oh, my God, that's going to make my pictures look like crap and look, you know, as if they're, uh, they've got no depth of field. But it doesn't do that because of the optical blow-up. And you shouldn't be, therefore, scared of it from a quality point of view, scared from it from a depth of field point of view. And unless you're really rich, uh, if you're like me, the idea that you could suddenly get a 200mm and make it a 400 without having to spend, you know, $1,500 and lug around a whole extra lens. It's just a really uh, cool thing. And so, just I'm going to be using this on the weekend, but um, I've been using it every week now since I got it. And yeah, I'm then I'm going to steal it. Yeah, taking it out and having it. It's one play. of those things I need to actually sort of physically... I know I've seen the math. I've seen the emails going backwards and forwards. I still want to just grab that lens, take a couple of shots and go, ah, yep, I was right, or I was full of shit. Yeah, and, and I've got to say that's one of the things we try and do in Red Center. We obviously try and get the maths right whenever we can and, and not pull punches and, and simplify stuff. But by the same token, we do occasionally just kind of give you our, our professional roundup opinion. And so, honestly, if I was with a director, and I do this a lot, and I'm not talking about Jason now, I'll get a director who is not technical, and they'll look to me for some kind of guideline. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I'm sure you could go on for maths for friggin' forever. Bottom line is, what do you think? And you have to just say, look, I think it'll look good. You won't hate the look. And it's cheap and easy to carry with you, and it won't make it look all soft and mushy. But I, for one, Jace, was absolutely in the camp that if you told me before I used it that I'd fall in love with a doubler, I'd be like, ah, I don't think so. Because mm. if it softens my image and screws it up, and I'm not so there. Yeah, use them all the time in, in cinema. You know, I mean, if, theoretically, if you hire a um, PL-mounted, or it's usually a modified Canon, uh, like a 400, 150 to 600, 300 uh, mil lens... Uh, in those kits will normally come a 1.4 and a times 2 and putting them on all the time and, and compensating for that and never really expecting it to suddenly go from nice 2.8 yumminess to you know something really crappy and or lack, lacking sharp I've done a thousand trillion feet of, of stuff with a 150 to 6 mil um, zoom which is a Canon which is Canon optics in, underneath and put a you know put the doubler on it's just what you do yeah and 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 so, yeah, the other thing I want to say is, 
and I hope this has come through in my talking, we absolutely love it when you guys engage with us at this level and send us emails and do stuff. We we never send back sarcastic, nasty remarks going, well, what are, what, what are you, what would you know, you know? Um, we totally love it. Like, we really, really appreciate you taking the time to have the conversation because they are intelligent conversations. And we, we, you know, slightly joked about all this traffic on emails, but only because they were really seriously heavy-duty technical discussions. I love it. I mean, I learn a lot whenever I do this. And even when I have to explain something that I think I know, just articulating it in words. So, you know, we really, I mean, uh, it's a super hackneyed, crappy podcasting expression to say that there's a conversation that goes on. And I, and I don't know how else to say it, but we genuinely like when you guys engage with us mm. and, uh, and we, you know, hate for that to ever stop. So, yeah, if, you, you know, if yeah. we're talking about stuff in the show and you're not comfortable about it, uh, by all means, ping us. Of course, if you want a really serious look at what we're doing, that tends to happen over in, um, in fxphd.com. But, hey, we're, we're always up for, um, for the, the dialogue. Yeah. Um, and, in fact, we, I shot some tests, which uh, I did for someone who sent me emails, and I posted them in PhD for the members' benefits because um, you know, I wanted to show myself uh, what was going to you know, happen. I think one of the best things we can do, actually, is, is, um, at Red Center is actually take time to test stuff. And I always get that thing where when I'm on a job, I think I'd really like to test these ND filters and what they're doing, but you know, whoever has the time to stop. So I, I love it that we uh, here at Red Center and the tech penthouse actually occasionally stop and go, okay. We made this assertion. Now let's just check. Yep, there's lots of gear coming that we're going to be testing too. Um, I've got a couple of excellent, excellent pieces of kit. I'm hovering by the mailbox waiting for stuff to come. That, so that wouldn't we'll, involve anything to do with transmitting pictures. Transmitting something and also I've got a monitor I'm, I'm dying to get my hands on, which I saw at NAB, and I'm dying to get my hands on that. Um, which segues nicely this. into our gear section of the show. Oh, yes, yes. Um, well, there's a bit of red gear. Um, which has actually been out and coming for a little while, but I think it's literally only just starting to filter out now. So it's just it's very simple, just a bit of a bracket, but uh, someone's really thought about this. It's called the uh, Calavera or the Deadly Calavera. It's from a company called Deadly Cine. Uh, it's deadlycine.com. And it's just a really simple bracket for your red one, um, which is, I mean, I've also always been kind of uh, kind of hated the you know the whole battery bracket drive bracket arrangement it sort of slips you go to grab the camera you move it i've had ca- numerous cameras as might well de- uh, attest been damaged through the um uh the cables on the back of the uh cradle hitting into the lcd hitting into the buttons turning cameras on when they shouldn't be and off when they shouldn't be <laughs> damaging lcds well, especially uh, it's, in car mounts, it's a really yes. pain i got it and it's quite embarrassing you go to grab the camera to you know st- who needs a panhandle grab the camera to sort of steer it around and just you know it gives away and i really hate that so anyway opportunities to get the drive and or batteries out of where they are and tuck them in or bolt them somewhere else so the idea behind this look it's a very simple l bracket but there's been some thought into the, the way this uh works basically it uh very heavy duty milled piece of aluminium that bolts onto the top of red one it goes sort of if you imagine your top handle is in two parts you basically use the front part of the top handle and bolt it onto that and then it goes down into the uh basically the uh top mount i guess they call it or the the top bracket um where the rods go through and essentially creates a bit of a space in there to do uh, if you put it there you can basically tuck the uh, red drive underneath it if you have a red drive and slip it under there and bolt it lock it in there safely um, with a little nylon tip bolt and keep it away from uh, off the cradle now what you can do then also is take the battery plate off out of the cradle and and plate and stick it to the top so you literally have the battery underneath the the battery on top of it and the drive underneath it and all essentially tucked in under the handles making it all complete nothing else hanging out the top of it lowering the C, the um, CG of the uh, of the camera and just tucking everything nice and neatly. What you can also do, because this thing is so incredibly... Um, you can actually then un- to undersling or topsling the camera from this plate so you can basically hang it upside down from a head, get your camera... You'll get your head on a crane, say bolt the, the head upside down and then literally hang the camera from this plate. It's, it's that strong. And one of the other also cool news, uh, uses, which is, again, there's shots in, of this in the show notes, is to actually, if you want to put the camera on 90 degrees, you, this plate is chunky enough that you can literally actually bolt one, one part of it uh, to the head and sling the camera over 90 degrees on the other side, which is 
I've done a few times, basically, if you're doing like plates of people, like uh, background plates against green of people standing there, you can actually fill the people with the vertical frame, uh, put the camera on its side, and then fill the person, yeah, fill the frame screen, with people, yeah. uh, basically, and just shoot on the side. Um, so it's very simple, very nice, very neat, well made. It's 295 bucks from deadlycine.com. And uh, yeah, they've got a few other little cool little brackets and things there as well. But, can I, uh, can I yes. do. Can I do this week's uh, Twitter shout-out? You can. Because this is now uh, really a rat hole, but I just had to laugh. Um, DSLR Informer. Oh, yes. Um, this is Dan Chung, who's a photographer who uses uh, SLRs for video and stuff. Um, he has a couple of thousand followers. He's a, he's a good guy. But I, one of the reasons I wanted to flag this is that he posted um, a link on his Twitter feed to the world's first 3D porno film shot in HD, and I believe that were red cameras I was seeing on on uh, <laughs> on the on the porn set. On the set, yes, uh, yeah. When I say that, is... I, I saw I saw in the video. Yes, oh, of, of the video of the making, making of, of it. Yes, of not the actual. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because yeah, now that's awesome. There's a Vimeo. There's a Vimeo behind the scenes of making it, which uh, looks kind of cool. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. Uh, well, so this is 3D red, right? I think it is. I mean, the thing is mainly about the degrading of women in their porn film and not really about the cameras, but it seemed to be like that it had a 3D stereo rig in the in the thing. Sure. Anyway, look, it's a great blog to go to. I go to all the time. DSLRnewsshooter.com is his blog, and obviously uh, twitter.com slash DSLRinformer uh, is... All one word. Yeah, okay. So that's Dan, that's Dan Chung's um, Twitter feed, is it? Yeah. Right. Yeah, he's Twitter feed. Cool. He's uh, located in Beijing, I believe. Right. Um, yeah, no, he, you know, I mean, there's a bunch of people like him, obviously people that you guys know um, that we just follow on Twitter and we like to give us some shout-outs because, quite frankly, we benefit from them uh, posting. And, uh, um, yeah, so that's where we are. Awesome. Yeah, no, it looks like, looking like it's uh, 3D. Looks like 3D stereo. Like 3D. Yeah. yeah you um, can humiliate people in stereo. <laughs> Lower people's self worth and uh, build all that uh, negative daddy issues uh, um, in in three D. Daddy issues? Yeah, and I, I, I am actually genuinely lost as to what that is about. But anyway, okay. hey, I'm going to go. I'm in. heading over to um, Adelaide to talk to our friends at uh, at Rising Sun for some stuff coming up on FX PhD. Um, thanks so much, Jace, for being with us. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Mike. And uh, this has all been recorded. I should add on the. Uh, the, what's the serial Did you press on? record, by the way? I guess I if did. we're hearing this, you did. I did. On the... Uh, DR100. The Tascam DR100, so which is what Jason part of my Jason recommended it last week. Last I bought you it. You are now... You went and bought one. Immediately that afternoon, and I've been using it, and this is what we are listening to. So if it sounds better, at least it doesn't sound like it's got problems. <laughs> at least it doesn't sound like there's... But seriously, I mean, uh, this is exactly what happens. You recommend stuff, and I take your advice, and I'm really glad that I did. So yes, thanks, so. Jace. No worries. And so you're now going out to get a... Uh, 3D red rig. I'm actually now going to get a Cicado. <laughs> and to find out all about but, daddy mm, issues. Mm. Okay. See you guys. See Bye. You. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please email us red at fxguide.com. Copyright 2010 FX Guide, LLC.